Wow. How's that landing with you, church? You feel a little burden rising up in your hearts. We should. We should have a burden for the lost. This is good, and I'm going to talk about this here in a second. But listen, we know that 2020 was a rough year. I know that is a massive understatement, and this year is continuing, and it's been difficult. But we just saying it, even when we can't see that you're working, Lord, even when we don't feel that you're working, you're still working. God is still on the move. Amen? He's still at work. And and part of my role, one of the the great privileges I have as missions pastor is I get to interact with our ministry partners, and I hear reports from them and how God, even or maybe especially amid a pandemic, has still been on the move. People getting saved, churches being planted left and right. Let me share some of them with you, and for sake of security for them, I can't share their names or their organizations, but let let me share some of these. Last year, one of our ministry partners, this is just one, trained 14,054 pastors and church leaders. Another one said in Indonesia, over 800 Muslims were baptized and are now actively following Jesus. Over 50 house churches were started and 23 community leaders were trained and mobilized as evangelists. Another one said that three new churches were started in Sri Lanka, which is a predominantly Buddhist area among Buddhists by a family that was formerly Buddhist. Another said that there were over 35 decisions for Christ in a brand new church started in Myanmar, and these churches are thriving and growing. Another said that over 7,640 people were served through emergency relief projects uh, due to COVID in India, Guatemala, Ukraine, Cuba, Zimbabwe. Another said that 15,000 Muslims were reached through online engagement initiatives. More people have been obviously online than ever before, and this has generated 60,000, just one ministry partner, 60,000 gospel conversations, and over 300 of them have accepted the Lord. Another said that in Russia and in Abkhazia, 2,500 gifts and Bibles were distributed to children and families, and then another one said in their ministry, 6,242 church planners were trained, 4,322 new churches were started, resulting in 87,994 new New believers amid a pandemic. Can we give God our some love? And how good is our God? So yeah, even when we can't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. And so let's pray right now and thank him for how he is working. Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts right now, that you would increase our burden for those who don't know Jesus, both around us and around the world locally and globally. God, would you give us such a passion for your glory, for your worship, for your splendor, and our joy in you, that it would just overflow, that we couldn't help but tell others about Jesus. And God, you told us to pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send workers into the harvest field, and that's what we are asking for. So please do a mighty work. Maybe you are calling some in Bethel Church right now to go globally, to give their lives for you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, my wife came up to me and she said, hey, uh, I have this great idea I want us to do. I want us to go for a few days to Chicago. We'll get a hotel, get a couple nights at a hotel, and just the two of us spend some time together. We'll evaluate the previous year and we'll set goals for the next year and it's going to be great. And I told her, oh, sweetheart, that idea is so cheesy. 
I literally said that. This is how I know God is a God of grace. I didn't sleep on the couch that night. <laughs> I mean, my wife is a woman of grace, praise God. And so I'm like, all right, reluctantly, I did it, dragging my feet. All right, let's do this thing. And it was awesome. I mean, we absolutely loved it. It was amazing. And so, in fact, it was so good that we have decided that we're going to do this twice a year, semi-annually, get away, have someone watch the girls, and we're just going to get away to, to evaluate the previous year and set goals for the next year. Now, when we started this, we were setting goals for 2020, not knowing that this year would, you know. But still, it was awesome just resetting our marriage and evaluating and looking at things and striving for growth and health. And so, uh, I, I even set up a spreadsheet for us. Now, I know what you're thinking. Nothing's more tantalizing. It gets the blood boiling in your spouse like a spreadsheet. I guess. I don't know. But anyway, using a spreadsheet, we go over five key areas we want to see growth in our marriage and in us individually. So we go over, you know, spiritual, physical, mental, social, or relational, and financial. And we set goals in each of these areas. But I found out pretty quickly, though, Setting goals is not enough. That's, that's not sufficient. It's not sustainable. If you've ever done New Year's resolutions, you know like it's going to last a week, a month. You need to put some teeth to this. And so we added essential columns to our growth plan. Namely, what's our current output? What's our desired output? What are our motives? What about uh, next steps? What about accountability? And so we needed to see where we are currently. And sometimes that is an honest but painful evaluation where we are and where we want to be, where we should be, where we could be. You know, in change management, theorists call this creating creative tension. So you're genuinely viewing the current reality compared to what you would like to see, what should be there, what could be there. And in this creative tension, that's where innovation happens. That's the impetus to change. A burden is created. Likewise, you need a strong motive. So, for example, in the area of, of mental, I made a goal to read a certain number of books every year. And I'm not doing this just to read books for reading's sake. It's because I want to see my mental acumen increased so I can be the best pastor and leader I can be, so I can shepherd and disciple well, to make wiser decisions. You know, if you, if you want to lose weight, you can't lose weight just to lose weight. You've got to have reasons behind that. What's your motive? If it's just to lose weight, that's not going to be great. But if it's, I want to look good, I want to feel good, I want to live longer, increase my quality of life, be around for my grandkids, now you have a motive. Finally, your follow-up and accountability have to be on point. So what are your immediate next steps? Who's going to hold your feet to the fire? Well, today we are looking at a tragic global reality, church. Maybe the most disturbing, pressing, urgent challenge for Christians of our day, the vast lostness in our world. Countless without Jesus. In fact, you might say it this way. This is the whole point this morning. Entire people groups are blinded to the truth of Jesus. Entire people groups. So who will help them see? Turn to Romans chapter 15. We're continuing in our series in Romans and we're going to look at these two verses through the lens of change management, like we just talked about. So first, we're going to look at the reality. Seeing the need leads to burden. The vision 
We look forward with hope, look forward with expectancy. The motive, we know the journey is difficult, and so we, what, what is our reason to press on? The engine, there has to be a power that is driving us forward. And lastly, the follow-through. What next steps can we take to see change happen in our world? So first, let's look at the reality. And for this, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of Romans three years ago. Do you realize we've been in Romans for three years? Can you believe that? Literally, this month, three years ago, we started. Uh, have you guys enjoyed Romans? Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been so good. So go to Romans chapter 1, and let's look at verses 18 through 21. And let me just say this. This is one of the most sobering passages in the entire Bible. We read this with a heavy heart. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Folks, that was you. That was me. Romans 3 says there is no one who is righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks after God. We are all together rebellious, committing spiritual mutiny, wanting nothing to do with God, unrighteous, ungodly. And since all are ungodly and unrighteous, we are under the wrath of God unless something happens. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's this notion of like taking a pillow over the face of truth, trying to snuff it out. You are trying to suppress the truth, closing your ears to truth. Even though, look what it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God is clearly seen in creation and in chapter 2, Romans 2, we see in conscience. Creation and conscience. Those are the two great witnesses to God's existence. And because of that, it says, verse 20, so they are without excuse. No one can say, I didn't know God existed. No one can say that. In verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Our minds were clouded. Their minds are clouded. Our minds used to be, our thinking used to be futile. Their thinking is futile. Our hearts were darkened. Their hearts are darkened to truth. They suppress the truth of God's existence. Now, I've heard people say, well, you know, uh, surely those who have never heard the gospel will go to heaven. Really? Because that's not what the Bible says. Biblically, that makes no sense. Logically, that makes no sense. If that's the case, then the Great Commission is the most evil, wicked thing Jesus could have ever done because you are now giving people the opportunity to hear and reject the gospel. There's a reason Jesus sent out the disciples and he sends us out to those who don't know Christ. Our sins cause us to deserve God's wrath. That is a hard but tr accurate truth. The punishment fits the crime. You know, if you come up to me and you slap me in the face, first of all, I'm going to be like, hey, <laughs> why? What was that for? That's probably the most wrath you're going to get from me. I, I might yell at you. I might get angry. Like, hey, but that's probably the most anger and wrath you'll get from me. If you slap the President of the United States or the Queen of England, you're probably getting five to ten in prison. See, the punishment fits the crime. The greater the person you transgress against, the greater the punishment. 
and to transgress against one who is infinitely holy, infinitely just, infinitely glorious, is to take on an infinite punishment. Eternal hell, then, is suitable and just. It's what we all deserve. And this is the reality of people unless they repent and believe in Jesus. John Piper said it this way, Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We should care about this. We should care about those who are dying and going to hell. We should be burdened for this. Now, the solution is Romans 10. Go to Romans 10. We're kind of doing a flyby of missions in Romans. Romans chapter 10, very well-known passage, verse 13. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Someone say hallelujah. That is such a verse of grace and mercy. Everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. That is a promise. Bank on it. But verse 14, how then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How can they hear of Jesus unless someone tells them about Jesus? You know, it's estimated that in our world, there are 7.85 billion people alive today. And of these seven, almost eight billion people, 3.23 billion people have never heard about Jesus. Oh, I don't think you heard me, church. Not 320,000, not 3.2 million. See, it's, it's hard to grasp, hard to put our mind around even what a million is. It's, we can't even fathom a million. We're talking about 3.2 billion, 3.2 billion people. Do we really believe that hell is real? Do we really believe that Jesus is, is the only way? Because folks, if that's true, this is not only a number. 3.2 billion is not just a number. These are souls going to hell unless someone tells them about Jesus. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Our orthopraxy should match our theology. We should practice what we preach. Where is our gospel urgency? Now, some may say, well, yeah, but isn't there a great spiritual need here in the States? Yes. Of course, there's no denying that. In fact, of all countries in the world, the U.S. has the third most unbelievers by population. Huge mission field. In fact, second only to India and China. But... That misses the point. It's about access. We have bountiful access here. Your lost neighbor can come across the street, or you, better yet, you can go to your lost neighbor and tell them about Jesus. There are churches everywhere. We have access to scripture, access to the gospel. In many areas of the world, they don't have that. Over two billion globally have no access to hearing about Jesus. There's not a church in their area, not a church in their community. There's no easy access to Scripture. They don't personally know a follower of Jesus. In fact, in some places, they would have to travel miles to meet a Christian. So again, if that's the case, who will tell them? How will they hear? 
According to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 17,446 unique people groups. That's the word ethne that Pastor Steve talked about two weeks ago. In your translation, it might say Gentiles or nations. It's the word ethne. What word do you think we get from ethne? Ethnic or ethnic ethnicity, ethnic people groups. These are ethno-linguistic groups with a common self-identity based on language, culture, history, background, religion, geography. And of these over 17,000 people groups in the world, over 7,400 of them are considered least or unreached. So I ask you, how's this landing with you right now? A burden might be forming in your heart, and it should be forming in your heart. You are right to have a burden. This is good, a holy ambition for those without Christ, people you both personally know and entire people groups who do not know Jesus. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The Old Testament prophets wept over the state of Israel. Christians throughout history have had sleepless nights submitting these tragic circumstances to the Lord in prayer. How can anyone be okay with billions of people around the world who have never heard of Jesus, many of whom have no access to hearing about him. That's the reality, folks. But what about the vision? Now look at the flip side of this. See, God gives us hope. He gives us a biblical preview of what is to come. We see this in Revelation, last book of the Bible. We get a glimpse of heaven. So look at Revelation 7, 9 and 10. He writes, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you catch that? From every nation. Now what Greek word do you think is the word for nation? Ethne. There's that word again. People groups. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, all 17,446 people groups will be represented around the throne of our King Jesus. Somebody say amen. Oh, what a beautiful picture of worship and fellowship in the glory of Jesus. And one of my favorite aspects of, of going on a short-term cross-cultural ministry trip, we call them go trips at Bethel, is I love worshiping with believers halfway across the world in a language I do not understand, in a culture I am not familiar with, in a location I have never been in, in a worship style that is altogether different, and yet there is a beauty to this because I know they're worshiping Jesus and I'm worshiping Jesus and there's this bond, oh, the joy of worshiping Jesus together. This is just a small foretaste of heaven. It's a small glimpse of eternal glory. We just had it, as we sang Waymaker, as Denise sang in Spanish. It was beautiful Spanish and English. All Think of thousands of languages and dialects all praising Jesus all at once. How glorified and splendorous, I don't even think that's a word, but who cares how much splendor there will be in heaven for all eternity gathered around the throne of Jesus forever and ever and ever. And if you get excited about that, say praise the Lord. And now, my friends... We have our creative tension. We see where we are now, but we see where we are headed. So where is the motive and the engine come into play? Well, let's go back to Romans 15, 20 and 21. 
Paul writes, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been already named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. See, here's the motive. Paul uses the word ambition, but we might say motive. Now, throughout history, we have seen all kinds of ambitious peoples. You have Ferdinand Magellan, who, you guys remember, think back to world history, do you remember what he did? He sailed around the world in the 16th century, circumvented the world on a boat, you know, 500 years ago, which is astounding. We think of Amelia Earhart, solo flight by herself over the Atlantic. We think about NASA reaching the moon. We think about Roger Bannister, who, anyone remember what he did? Ran the mile in under four minutes. They said it could never be done, but he's like, I'm going to do it. He set his mind and his heart to beating that four-minute mark, that four-minute mile. And that's the thing with ambitious people. Nothing and no one can deter them from their goal. That's, that's, That's the thing about the ambitious. They are resolute, and they often are seen as radical, as obsessed. And man... Paul was a man obsessed, obsessed with Jesus. He had a laser focus on Jesus. He had a holy ambition to preach the gospel. This is the word euangelizo. It's literally where we get our word evangelism. It's sharing good news, telling good news. And we do this all the time. See, joy is naturally shared. It's expansive. We, we tell good news about when we've seen a good movie good restaurant, good food, good music, and we tell others, you gotta listen to this, you gotta eat this, it's, it's phenomenal. And we have the greatest news in history. And Paul knew that. And so he had a holy ambition. Where did this holy ambition come from? Well, look again at verse 20. He starts with the word thus, or because of. So because of the, follow, the previous things I just said, I have this holy ambition. So we gotta look at the previous verses then. So look up, look back to verse 16. He talks about the priestly service of the gospel of God. The Old Testament priests would take resources that the Lord had given them and they would offer them in acts of worship, sacred worship, sacred liturgy to the Lord. And we have the gospel. That is our resource to offer sacred worship to the Lord. And with the gospel, what does Paul desire to offer in priestly service? Well, he says, the salvation of peoples who don't yet know Jesus. That is the sweet, acceptable offering to the Lord. Last week was what day? Oh, church. <laughs> Last week was Valentine's Day. Ooh, I hope you had a good Valentine's Day. Listen, there's no time like the present. Get something for your spouse today. Say, hey, I, I intended to do this. You know, I was too busy on Valentine's Day. I got you something today. You know, and then there are always those husbands who are like, well, every day is Valentine's Day for me. Okay, well, if you get chocolates and flowers and whatnot for your spouse every single day, then props to you. But on Valentine's Day, we exchange gifts. Why? Because we love our beloved. We, we do acts of service for them. We spend time with them. We want to give to the ones that we love. And the magnitude of the gift is proportional to the glory of its recipient. We want to give so much to those we love because we express our love to them. And Paul suffered. We we read 2 Corinthians 11. Paul suffered much for the sake of the gospel. He was beaten with rods, whipped 
you know, 40 lashes minus one, uh, several times, he was literally stoned to death. They took rocks and tried to stone him in the middle of the town square, thought he was dead, dragged him out to the outside the city, left him for dead, went back into town, and he just wakes up, and he goes right back into town preaching the gospel. This is a man obsessed. Says he was shipwrecked. He had sleepless nights, cold nights, hungry nights. And, all, and, and as if all that wasn't enough, he was burdened for the churches, and yet Paul said, it was worth it. It's worth it as an offering to Jesus because he is worthy. Say he is worthy. He is worthy, infinitely worthy. Jesus is worthy of all our effort, all our resources, all our time, and yes, maybe even our own lives. Count the cost, church. He is worthy. He says in verse 18, Paul deflects glory from himself. He's not going to speak on any of his accomplishments, but only of Christ. See, that's the difference between holy ambition and selfish ambition. Paul was driven by the glory and joy of the Lord. That's his motive. You might say that worship leads to witness and witness leads to worship. That is the perpetual cycle that we see. And his ambition was to preach the gospel where Christ had not already been named. Jesus cannot be named where he is not known. And Paul wanted to be the one to lay the foundation, allowing others to build upon that foundation. You know, I, I've never built a house, but I, I kind of know how it goes. You don't put in the frame before you do the foundation. You don't put in the roof first. That sounds obvious, right? The foundation is the first thing you do, and it's actually the hardest aspect and often the most expensive aspect because it's necessary. If you're even a few inches off, you're just off a smidge, the whole building is off kilt. It's vital to build the foundation and then build upon that foundation. And Paul wanted to build the foundation of the gospel. He wanted to expand the boundaries of God's kingdom, laying foundations for local churches to build upon. And he did this all over the Mediterranean region. If you look up at the, the map here on the screen, Christian churches were popping up all over, he says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania, all over the Mediterranean region, planting churches. He had been planting churches, but now, now he sets his sights on areas where there was no gospel foundation, where they have never heard of Jesus. In fact, in the next several verses, he talks about, I want to go to Spain. They didn't yet know about Jesus in Spain. Paul was a trailblazer for the gospel. You might say a pioneer missionary. You know, I, I read these words. I don't know why, but I read these verses, and I have like the soundtrack of an old western that plays in my mind as I read these, like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I don't know, I'm weird. And here's Paul, and he's just bold, you know, puffing his chest out, looking at the other Christians. This town ain't big enough for the both of us, pilgrim. And not out of pride, but out of strategy. He wants to go where there aren't Christians. He wants to go where the gospel has not been named. He wants to go boldly where no man has gone before. And yes, I realize that's Star Trek and I just went over a Western and there's a weird juxtaposition there, but let's go with it. He wants to go where Jesus has not been named. Now, is everyone called to this? No. But it was Paul's calling 
and we sure do need more people like Paul. And some have been called to church planning in frontier areas unreached by the gospel, and we need to see, we want to see many more. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 9? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest field. We need more workers globally. And maybe that's you. Oh, I pray that's you. I pray that some of you right now listening, whether online or in person, your heart is burdened like, "Ah, maybe God is calling me to this. That's good. I must warn you, though, there's a reason these places are unreached. They're difficult. They are hard. And this may cost you your life. So the question is, is he worth it? And I have a hard time as a missions pastor. Am I okay sending out people to unreached areas, least reached peoples and places, knowing that I may never see them again? But Jesus is worth it. I just finished a book last month called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Unbelievable book. I I put it on the top of your book list. If you want your heart just ripped open for missions in a good way, it's so good. It's an autobiography of a missionary who was a missionary in the early 90s in Somalia during the Somali Civil War. And he talks about just the agony and seeing Christians killed left and right and seeing what God was doing in the midst of these six years he was there. It got to a point where he and his family had to leave the country for their safety, and so they did. And he was like, how can Christianity survive persecution? So for the next 15 years, he travels the world and interviews secretly persecuted Christians. And what he finds out is that not only can persecution, not only can Christianity survive persecution, but it actually thrives in persecution. And so he goes to China and he meets with an underground hidden church and they say this, the security police regularly harass believers who own property where a house church meets. And the police will say, you have to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. And then the property owner responds, do you want my house, my farm? You can have it, but if you do, you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police doesn't know what to make of that answer. And so they say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. Yeah, 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 but if you keep this up, we will beat you. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers respond. Then we will put you in prison, the police threaten. And by now, the believers' response is almost predictable then we will be free to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the captives, to set them free, and we will be free to plant churches in prison. The frustrated authorities then vow, if you try to do that, we will kill you. And with utter consistency, the house church believers reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. See, if we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so averse to sacrifice that we, that we avoid even the risk of persecution or crucifixion, that we might never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of a resurrection faith. Ironically, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with our risen Jesus. He's worth it, church. 
He's worth the cost. So now we have the reality, the vision, the motive. What about the engine? See, burden and motive are not enough. You need the power that runs this thing. And look at verse 21. Paul writes, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Just because you have eyes doesn't mean you can see. Just because you have ears doesn't mean you can hear. Grasping the word of God is not a hearing problem. It's a heart problem. Sinners are blind to spiritual truths until their dead hearts are made alive. They need a spiritual heart transplant. And Paul is quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 15, which begins the most famous transparently messianic passage in Isaiah, maybe in all the Old Testament, the suffering servant passage pointing to Jesus. Isaiah 52 and 53 is spectacularly accurate foretelling of the gospel. He says that he shall sprinkle. Who's he? Jesus shall sprinkle all the nations, many nations. Well, how does he sprinkle? With his blood, by faith in him, in his provision on the cross, his atoning sacrifice. He sprinkles us clean, makes us pure. So he sprinkles many nations. If this was written in the Greek, it would be, again, the word ethne. Many peoples would see and hear this gospel and receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. And Paul saw his calling, his missional strategies as fulfillment of Scripture. The Word of God was a driving force for Paul. It was part of his motive. So how are peoples brought to faith? Well, look at verse 19. Look back at verse 19. It's by word and deed by the power of the Spirit of God. So we point people, never stop pointing people to Jesus through words and works, gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the key. That's the rub. We need the Holy Spirit to do a mighty work. He is the engine. Hearts are transformed by the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then they see, they will see, their eyes will be opened, the scales will fall off their eyes. And if anyone knew about this, Paul's own testimony gives credence to this. Literally in Acts 9, he's blinded by the glory of Jesus. And then he finds Ananias, Ananias prays over him, he prays to receive Jesus' salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And the scales of his eyes literally fall off. He's able to see physically and spiritually for the first time in his life. And when you've told someone about Jesus, and you see that before you, there is nothing like it. There's nothing like telling someone about Jesus, and you could see that instantaneous change in their mind, in their heart. They grasp the truth of Jesus. They will hear and know Jesus, not just about Jesus. Their minds are awakened to the truth of Jesus, and the truth will set them free. It is only through the accomplished work of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father, that the gospel ministry to people groups is possible. So we have our reality, our vision, our motive, our engine. What about the follow-through? Now what? What are our next steps? Well, years ago, Bethel set a vision and strategy for missions, which is to partner with those who are equipping locals, nationals, in least reach areas to be church planners. That's our direction. That's our goal, folks. That's where we're headed globally in in missions at Bethel Church. So there are three parts to this. Number one, indigenous local leadership development. 
Now, I firmly believe in Western missionaries. We need to send people out from the states, but we can't just go to plant churches and build hospitals and do everything ourselves. We have to work, have to work with locals, with nationals in these areas, equipping them for the work of ministry. So local indigenous leadership development. Number two, least reached peoples and places. And number three, church planning. There's a reason for this. That's the strategy. Unreached peoples need churches planted. And the Great Commission was not only given to Paul and his disciples. Folks, it was given to you and to me, to all followers of Jesus. So what are you doing to personally further the gospel? To help those go where you can't go. We all have skin in the game. We all need to get a little uncomfy. Claude Hickman wrote this, the aim of God's biblical, entire biblical story has one mission, reaching all the nations, and one method, all believers. So for 2,000 years, that's what God has been doing. The Lord has been putting seekers in the paths of Christ followers. I really believe among the 3.2 billion people who have never heard of Jesus, if there truly are those who are seeking truth, they know the existence of God, and there's like, they're thinking there's got to be more than this. I believe that God, because he is not only just but loving, he is good, he is great, will put in their path a Christ follower that can tell them about Jesus because it's happening, folks. We see this in Acts chapter 8. You have the Ethiopian eunuch. He's in the middle of the desert, and then Philip just, it's like Star, Star Trek. He, God beams him up. Beam me up, Scotty. He just—he appears right there all of a sudden. He sees the Ethiopian, this man from Africa, reading Isaiah that we just read earlier. And he's like, I don't understand this. Who can explain it to me? And God has Philip explain to him the gospel. That's what God has been doing for 2,000 years. Guess where the fastest growing Christian movement in the world is right now? Where would you guess? Iran. Iran, the only Islamic theocracy in the entire world, and yet in the midst of COVID, there has been a disillusionment with Islam. Only 40% of Iranians identify as Muslim right now. And the pandemic has sent more Iranians online than ever before. Online follow-up groups have seen more people willing to engage in discipleship than ever before in history. How good is our God? In Lebanon, I had the privilege to go there a couple years ago. In Lebanon, over the last two years, they've had wildfire, wildfires, economic collapse, political upheaval, riots, coronavirus, and most recently in August, a massive explosion in downtown Beirut that rocked the whole country and killed hundreds, and yet all this has opened doors for Christians to show love and demonstrate peace and hope through Christ amid strife. COVID has caused, and I hate this word, I hate this word, it's overused, but I'm going to use it in a good context. COVID has caused unprecedented disciple-making movements across global areas that historically have been closed to the gospel. He's doing something. Even when we can't feel it, he's working. Even when we can't see it, he's working. And here's the thing, church. The least reach are also coming into our backyard more than ever before. J.D. Greer says this, a church that is not on mission is just a group of disobedient Christians hanging out. Whoo! That stings a little bit, right? If I'm not burdened for the loss locally, why would I be burdened for the loss globally? I mean, who knows? Perhaps I will share Jesus with someone who shares Jesus with someone who shares Jesus with someone who goes to Algeria to plant a church. We don't know. 
We are responsible with the resource we have, which is the gospel of Jesus, to present it to the Lord as an offering worthy of him because he is worthy. Bethel Church, God is at work. Let's join him in his plan to reach the nations. Our responsibility as priestly ministers of the gospel of God is to pray, send, and go. So this week, actually today, this afternoon, you're gonna receive an email with next steps on these three areas, pray, send, go. We all need to be involved in this. So first, we can pray. You can go to BethelWeb.org forward slash missions for a number of ways you can pray. In the email today, you're gonna get a prayer guide, praying locally, regionally, nationally, globally, praying over our ministry partners. You're gonna see uh, a link to an app, which is probably the best prayer app I have on my phone called Unreached of the Day. Every day, it sends you a new people group to pray over. Just take a minute or two every day. Set your, uh, it lets you set a notification at a certain time every day to pray over a different people group. Now, there are, again, 7,000-plus people groups, so it's going to take you a long time. I don't know. Do the math. That divided by 365, but a minute or two every day to pray over unreached peoples. You could go online, BethelWeb.org forward slash missions, sign up for our Bethel Missions Update email newsletter we send out every month. So that's pray, send. In the email, you're going to get a family missions guide. This is a guide, a document my wife actually created, which, okay, I'm a little biased, but it's pretty awesome. It's a great resource that parents can go through with their kids to teach them about missions. It's fun, it's interactive, teach them about our ministry partners. So we would encourage you to do that. And then go. We're doing four go trips this year. Regionally, nationally, domestically, but we're doing four go trips, short-term cross-cultural ministry trips, youth, adults. We're going to go short-term, but maybe God is putting on your heart to go mid-term. Maybe you want to go for three months or a year or two years, give up a couple years of your life, maybe long-term. If that's the case, please email me, jbryant at bethelweb.org. And we need to go locally. We need to tell our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members about Jesus because he's worth it, folks.